good to be back here with you this evening. I still have that problem with my ear. It's kind of uh, congested and full, so I can't hear really well what I'm saying or how I'm projecting necessarily. They said last evening that I was having some trouble, uh, uh, that maybe my voice dropped toward the end. And it's not that I can't speak up, but just if you can't hear, you know, maybe put both hands up behind your ears or something, and we'll uh, we'll try to uh, see that that gets taken care of. And I visited with the guy at the sound booth, too, and so I think we'll be fine. It's good to see uh, Floyd and uh, Mrs. Floyd there with us this evening. Uh, good to have you here. This evening I want to talk about the church as a strong building. Last evening we talked about the church as a remarkable body. I don't know if I ever quite mentioned the title and, and you know specifically as we were going through, but we looked at some of the different comparisons, the metaphors about or the ways that our human body works like the body of Christ. And it was a it was a good reminder, again, to look at some of those things and to see uh, ways that those things parallel and uh, interact with us. I started introducing my family last evening, I think, and got a little distracted and didn't finish, but that's not unusual for speakers to get distracted and not finish. Uh, my wife is Judy. She's here. And she's the one that's relatives with a lot of you. And uh, we have three children. Uh, two daughters, Hannah, who's married and lives in our community, uh, Christy, who's married and in spite of our best interest, moved all the way to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where there was plenty of people already. And then our son, Joseph, uh, is still at home. He's actually covering for me somewhat in some of my responsibilities there. Uh, our two daughters... I don't know how competitive they were, but uh, they were both in a race to present us with our first grandchild. And uh, Hannah, the oldest, uh, when was her son born? What day of the month? The 18th of February, a year ago, and Christie's daughter was born on the 19th of February a year ago. So it was kind of neck and neck, and we didn't know which one would come out ahead. Anyway, <laughs> some years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of traveling in Europe. We had the opportunity to visit some magnificent cathedrals while we were there. Some were extremely ornate. Most had high ceilings, dome ceilings. There were frescoes, designs on the ceilings, beautiful stained glass in the windows. Some had a lot of gold in the architecture, gold in the designs. How many of you have traveled in Western Europe? Surely a bunch of you have. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Okay. The buildings were just fantastic. We stood there in awe. It was hard to imagine the money, the work that went into these buildings, the time that went into these buildings. 
and this was way before we had a lot of the uh, possibilities that we have today in construction, the nail guns and the scaffolds and the sky tracks and the whatever, the extreme, extreme uh, uh, focus on detail and, and cost was no issue apparently. But there was something that was kind of sad about those big, beautiful buildings. It seemed these buildings were almost like museums. It didn't appear that they got much use at all. Today, or this 30-some years ago when Judy and I were there, they served as a convenient stop for tourists to go in, look, kind of in awe at those buildings. There was a sense in a small way that you could almost feel a sense of worship realizing what detail that the builders had gone to, but it was limited. The personal touch, the warmth of fellowship, the warmth of brotherhood, it seemed like was by now completely missing there. Since then, I've traveled uh, different times to India, quite a few times, actually. I remember one of those services on one of my earlier trips. It may have been close to 20 years ago. I don't know. One night that stands out in my mind, we traveled for what seemed like a long time after dark. We finally got to this village, <clears throat> and it was raining. I don't know if the town was just out of electricity or if it was beyond the grid. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, in that small house, there was a group of believers that had assembled that had been waiting for us to arrive. We had a nice time of worshiping there that evening using the light of battery lanterns. I'd left my shoes outside for quite a while. Those Sunday shoes were kind of and a little bit compromised from that experience. <clears throat> when we lived in Nicaragua, I have good memories of the times that we spent there, different times that we worshipped with the local brethren out in the remote areas. The electricity didn't reach. We worshipped by candlelight. I remember one time down close to Lake Nicaragua on the uh, east side, uh, they had a plague of Mats Chayulis. I don't know if you remember if you had those in Guatemala or not, but uh, it was like turbocharged winged mats, <laughs> and those would come around and they'd seek moist places in your in your body, like your eyes or your nose or your mouth or whatever, and they were just really nasty. I think before the evening got over or got through, they just cut the lights, <clears throat> and we had the service there in the darkness. But you know what? <clears throat> Well, let me go on. I remember those days we spent in the community in Nuevo Armenia. We bathed in the creek. We slept at night in the church building. We sang by candlelight. Roosters freed of the new days. Wood fires cooked our meals. So what is it that constitutes church? What is church? 
Matthew 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It's not the building that makes the church. So my question this evening is, what makes the church? What is the church? Can someone tell me what 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 says? turn with me in your cell phones. <laughs> Someone who finds it there, go ahead and uh, get that for me if you would. 1 Corinthians 3.16. While you're looking for that there on the sound booth, does someone have a, uh, a spacer about this big that I could put here at the bottom? It's, it's slanted just enough that my notes keep coming down and I'm far-sighted enough that it works better if they're up there a little bit. <laughs> That's fine. Who has it? First Corinthians 3.16. You got it, Michael? Go for it. Keep going. I think maybe it's the next verse, too. I'm not sure. Okay, no, no, no. You were right. No, you're not, King James. That you're the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Okay, now, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Some of you that had the, the chapter 3, just a page back probably. Somebody read that for me. It's big. Yeah, I think that works. Okay, both of these passages basically is saying that God takes up residence inside us so that we become, in a sense, the temple of God. So individually, there's a sense that we become that dwelling place for God. And that's really a pretty neat thought if you think about it, that God chooses to dwell in these jars of clay that His glory may be manifest and may be seen. Well, in that sense, we become individual temples of God. And then when two or more of those individual temples of God get together, we have the sense of church. A church is a group of believers who have allowed God to make their bodies a dwelling place for His Holy Spirit. And this evening, we want to look at the church as a strong building. <clears throat> Last evening, I referred to Matthew 16, verse 18. That uh, first part of the verse is maybe a little bit uh, controversial or whatever, and it's easy for me in a, a time like this to kind of dive in at the back part of the verse. But Leon, what does that verse say? Okay, yes. When Jesus was talking to Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The scriptures use the metaphor of a building quite a bit as it's talking about the church. There's different passages, and in these different uh, evenings, 
it's easy to figure, I'm mean, to try to figure out, okay, if we're going to be talking about a garden, are we going to be talking about I'm the vine and you're the branches? Are we going to talk about the parable of the soils and the sower, or how are we going to go about it? Anyway, you know, uh, during the time that we were in Nicaragua, there were a couple of earthquakes. Now, not earthquakes anywhere close to the magnitude of the one that they were have, they're having or they had in Turkey and uh, Syria just recently. But uh, there were several of those earthquakes. <clears throat> close to the town of Messiah was the village of La Cevita. There was a small Brethren in Christ church in that area, and it was a, an area that we were working with our work somewhat. And La Civita was close to the center of where this earthquake hit. The name of the pastor working there was, I think, Angel Perez, not that that makes any difference, but his home was destroyed. Rubble, basically, down, flat. And in that pile of rubble lay the body of his small grandson. He was killed when the house collapsed on top of him. There was a lot of grief and sadness in that home. The child's mother was injured. The child was dead. The house was a pile of rubble. But there was other houses in that area in that village. Many of the houses had some damage, but not nearly all of the houses were destroyed. The pastor's home could easily have been built to have withstood the earthquake of the magnitude that he just experienced. But it wasn't. It collapsed it was loss of life. It was grief. You know, Nicaragua is in an earthquake zone. I think it was in 72, maybe, that downtown Managua was just significantly destroyed from an earthquake. You know, with proper precautions, well-built buildings can withstand almost any earthquake. Japan, in many ways, is technologically advanced. They are subject to major earthquakes, and they have buildings, some of them, that are tremendously well-prepared for the movement of the earth. Well, I assume, or I, I mean, it's very possible that this pastor, this Mr. This pastor Pettis, might have been responsible for constru uh, constructing his own house. I don't know. He might have had it hired. I'm not sure. But it wouldn't have been unusual for a man to have re assumed that responsibility. But I can only imagine the shame, the pain, the hurt, the tears, maybe, to realize, had I taken better precautions, that would not have had to happen. Spiritually, we are all involved in some way in the building of the Church of Jesus Christ. All of you that are here this evening. You know, the Bible speaks of a time ahead that will reveal what kind of construction that that church that you're working on or a part of will be. 
what kind of construction that church was. The church of Jesus Christ has a strong building. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I don't want to confuse you. The metaphor that we're using tonight for the church is a building, but for practical purposes, I'm not talking about this building, the, uh, the uh, church, the building just across here, or any of these Methodist or Baptist churches along the road out here. The definition of church, as I understand it, comes from the Greek word that I want to use tonight, ecclesia, something like that, which I understand means an assembly or called out ones. So this evening, the metaphor is a building, but the church is the assembly of believers. It's not the building. Okay? If you have your Bibles, turn uh, to 1 Corinthians 3. We'll look at some verses there. Some of you may still have it open from a bit ago. And uh, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 3. Starting in at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. It's a very familiar passage, but it's a passage that talks about building. How's my voice? Am I speaking about the right... Uh, <laughs> right uh, Okay, good. If, if I don't, just remind me. Okay. For ye are, verse 9, I'm sorry. For ye, we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay, and that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward, and if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Verse 11. How many of you are familiar with verse 11, and how many of you are familiar with any significance of verse 11 uh, to us as Anabaptists? You're nodding your head. Tell me what it is. It was like Menno Simon's motto or, or theme verse. Those of you that traveled in uh, Western Europe, did you go to Whitmarsham in the Netherlands? You saw the statue there honoring Menno Simons, and at the bottom of that thing, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Good answer. You're listening. Without a good foundation, there can't be a good building. Some of you are involved in the building trades. Ben, you're uh, in, in building 
somewhat. Mel, you do some uh, handyman type stuff. And your son does some uh, contracting? Or who? No? You have over the years. Okay. So you people are somewhat familiar with, with construction and construction techniques. And actually, I think most of us Mennonites at some point have kind of rubbed shoulders if we aren't ourselves with someone who is. Very often we are. The Apostle Paul is explaining that the foundation is there already. The foundation has been laid. Make no mistake, it is Jesus Christ. If a building is to stand, it needs a good foundation. You know, a building can be ever so ornate, can be so beautiful, but if it does not have a good foundation, it will not last. You know, it's not always readily apparent from the outside if a building has a good foundation or if it doesn't have a good foundation. It may look like it does, and really, when you get in underneath, uh, it may not be. We lived in an old house. It was kind of a, a farmhouse, I think it was probably put up by some of the earlier, earlier settlers, the first part of it. It looked like they built maybe a, a, a 14 by 24 house, and I don't know if they had a good wheat crop a couple years later, and they added another 16 feet on it. But by most uh, measures, a pretty austere little house. When we did some uh, remodeling in that house, took out the plaster on the inside or was putting in some windows or something, it looked like they had one-by boards on the outside, like that was probably the outside wall. And it was interesting. I was noticing on the inside, I could reach in there, and it looked like they had uh, pasted newsprint, newspaper, over the inside. And I don't know, was that wallpaper, or was it trying to seal off the wind that was coming through, or, or what it was. Well, by now, the newspaper wasn't in too good shape, so it, we, we couldn't get off pieces more than about that big. But uh, one of the specials was, it was kind of an ad, I think, about this machine that the women could buy that they could use to sew their clothes. And what a remarkable thing. I'm assuming it was a treadle, maybe a singer, I don't know. I think it was around 20 bucks, and you could set it up on payments and, and whatever. Shoot, at one of the airports the other day, we spent more than that at McDonald's, I think. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, but that house, I'm getting sidetracked on the stories, I'm sorry. <laughs> that house, underneath, there were some things going wrong. The foundation wasn't too good anymore. They had kind of dug out a cellar under part of that thing. And once in a while, those pipes had freeze in underneath that. Any of you like to go in underneath houses, try to fix pipes when there's copper pipes in there, you need to sweat. It's not a good thing. In that house, it was, it was, it was starting to get to be a problem. And probably 13 years ago, something like that, 14 years ago maybe, we finally decided we we're going to do something. We had made some amendments along the way. But we did something fairly serious. We went in there, we took off the porch off the one end of the house. We took off some bedrooms that we'd added from the other end of the house. We went in there, got a, a track hoe in or whatever, excavated a basement out to the south side. Milo and Mary Sue have been there, and more of you would be welcome. 
Uh, and he jacked up the middle part of that house. He brought that thing up about 18 inches. We live on kind of a flat place there. And uh, we were able to pour new walls and put a basement underneath that thing. And that made a world of difference in that house. We were able to get it on a good foundation again. You know, it's not always apparent, like I said, looking at the outside of a building, whether it's a sound building structurally or if it has a good foundation or not. You know, there are some brands of religion that may look very impressive from the outside. They may be centered on many good principles, noble principles of tolerance and acceptance, peace and love, and embracing of all. But they can be very man-centered instead of founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. Through a series of events, we got acquainted with a Baha'i couple. We consider them friends, and I think they feel kind of a special affinity to us, us being kind of recognized as, as uh, part of a fairly small ethnic group. And they, we've had them out to our place a few times, and we've been to their place. And uh, they're retirement age now, and they enjoy going on cruises. And the Persian wife seemed quite convinced that we should be joining them on a cruise sometime. Well, we haven't done that up till now, so uh, I don't assume that it'll be happening anytime real soon. You know, the Baha'is are gentle people who see good in many people. good, I think, in many ideologies, but they stop short of claiming Jesus Christ is the only way to God. We have different friends, Hindu acquaintances. Hindus supposedly have room for like, I think, three million deities, something like that. Any of you other pastors uh, studied that? Uh, it can be just myriads, and you figure out, you know, which one you're connected with, or which one you're responsible to, or whatever. So, yeah, it's like maybe they're open to having Jesus thrown into the mix somewhere. So, Kalyani could be at the Center Amish Mennonite Church, and be there listening as I was speaking at our son's baptism. And she could be, you know, agreeing, kind of, and, and, uh, and, and, and interacting, or, or feeling uh, interest in the... Uh, in the presentation, but still, they would stop if what it would say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Up at Meadville, I was there with the uh, FP people one day, and as part of their assignment, they went to the Unitarian Church uh, in Meadville. And that was a, I don't know, kind of a spooky experience. People that were open and were friendly and were consciously avoiding the claims of Jesus Christ is what it felt like. Jesus Christ, He alone is worthy. We must base our faith on Jesus Christ. You know, an encounter with Jesus Christ is a life-defining moment, a life-defining event. 
in life, we encounter many forks in the road. And if we're in some strange, disorganized place that has roads just curving all over the place and forks going off here and forks going off there, it can be kind of confusing to know where you're going. In life, many times we are brought to the point of decision. We're faced with two possibilities, both with its own set of consequences. The scriptures contain a lot of stories of people who faced major decisions, decisions with life-changing consequences. There was a lot. They chose the good land, the good pastures close to Sodom. There was Joshua, who at that time of declaration says, Choose ye this day who ye will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Samson, he wanted Delilah. Get her for me. Okay? Moses, that beautiful chapter of heroes in Hebrews, chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Many times we're faced with decisions. Sometimes those decisions demand our personal choice, our own volition. And there's other times that our inaction becomes our decision. The turn of the steering wheel is in our hand, but the consequences of that turn are determined by the almighty hand of God. Defining moments. An encounter with Christ, an encounter with God, is many times a defining moment. It's that fork in the road, Joe. That decision that we're facing. Matthew 21, it's talking about this stone that the builders rejected that became the head of the corner. Well, in one uh, paraphrase or translation, maybe the stone that the builders rejected has become the very stone that holds together the entire foundation. It's like a puzzle piece, maybe. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Matthew 8, verse 12. Can somebody find that for me very quickly? In verse 44, back in that passage in Matthew. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Does someone have Matthew 8, verse 12? Okay. I'm not quite sure. I, I had that in my notes here, and I didn't have the script for it. And uh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I'm not... I'm, I'm not ready to tie it together here real well, so that's fine. You know, the rich young ruler came to Jesus wondering what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. 
Jesus told him to sell what he had and give to the poor, and then he would have treasure in heaven. The young man went away grieved, for he had great possessions. There was an encounter with Jesus. There was a decision made, and the young man didn't want to pay the price. In Acts 8, we have another story of a young man. We're talking about defining moments, or I don't know how young the man was. I'm assuming he might not have been real old. Who had Jesus put presented to him. It was the Ethiopian eunuch who was traveling on that road between Jerusalem and Gaza. Philip was used by the Lord in a miraculous encounter, it seems, to introduce him to Jesus, the Messiah. His eyes were opened, and he requested baptism and was baptized on the confession of that faith. An encounter with Jesus is often a defining moment. It's a time when we are faced with decisions. What are we going to do with that? And both sides have implications. We have many decisions that we face in life. When we lived in Nicaragua, the uh, organization that we were working with was setting up their base of operations. And it was interesting to watch the construction procedures. And I know some of you have lived in Central America. Have others of you lived in other countries out besides uh, America? You have? Okay. You? Okay. And uh, Sonny and Ruth. Where did you live, John? In Guatemala for about six months? Cool. How about you? So you have some memories, but not a ton, okay. Uh, you were in Canada, okay. And Delvin's were in Guatemala. Lowell was in Guatemala. Did someone else? Okay, yeah. And where were you? Belize, okay, Belize. Uh -huh. It's been quite a few years since I've been in Belize, but anyway. It's interesting seeing construction procedures in those countries that are earthquake-prone. Uh, a lot of the work was done by hand there in Nicaragua, and it was partly a cornfield or a, a platanal, a banana patch or whatever, when that property was bought. But they came in there and they excavated these holes about a meter by a meter, and they built in a, a foundation there in the bottom. They used rebar like crazy. And there was a guy that was sitting over in the shade of the tree cutting the rebar. And uh, if you work with rebar, you know it typically isn't a real malleable or real soft uh, deal. They would make these neat cages. And these cages might have six rebar tied together and be wrapped around, and they would pour those in. They made these columns that went way up high vertical columns, and the vertical columns were like at the corners of the building, beside the windows, beside the doors, those kinds of places. And then they had horizontal beams, and actually they called the one beam that went on the ground the Viga Seismica. Uh, tell them what that is, basically. It's like a, a seismic beam. It was like, I mean, I think that's, that's right. It was like a, this is the the earthquake beam here, or whatever. And those buildings that were built right were made to withstand just about any kind of an earthquake.
You know, there's, a, in contrast, a type of construction that's used in the United States. I'm assuming you have some of it here in Virginia. I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I think I've seen. But uh, mobile homes, manufactured housing. Do you have some manufactured housing here? Sure you do. Uh, the manufactured housing, it, is, it filled a niche. It was a market. It was a good thing. Uh, we considered when we were trying to figure out if we wanted to fix our house or if we wanted to do something else, would it just be simpler to go buy a double wide somewhere and, uh, and put it up? I'm sort of glad we didn't. I do some construction, so I was able to do a lot of this stuff in-house. Anyway, uh, uh, so it worked out well. But say what you will, not a lot of people will be defending the integrity of a manufactured home in a tornado. And we live in Kansas where there's tornadoes. And uh, <clears throat> there's just, I mean, it's not, not a, a moral issue, but it's not a place that somebody would choose. You know, I think there's a tornado bearing down on us. Oh, man, I'm glad we got a mobile home, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You'd probably want to go to the neighbors that got a concrete basement. Well, we had some uh, friends, acquaintances from Texas, and uh, they lived, I think it was a manufactured home, I'm not quite sure, but uh, James Kimberlin's, I doubt any of you know him, I don't know, and a tornado came through their area, and they apparently didn't get a lot of warning, I don't know what, there was a noise, there was things flying all over the place, Melinda disappears, the house was in shambles. Well, Melinda, I don't know if she was knocked out or not. I heard her tell this story. Uh, she was down under a pile of stuff, and I don't know, was there insulation in her mouth or what all it was? She didn't know how deeply she was buried, I don't think, and how can she notify anyone where she is and what, what can we do about this thing? And uh, her husband... I think at the same time, after the thing had kind of passed, was trying to figure out where, you know, where do we go from here. And Melinda discovered that one of her legs was free, and she could kind of wave that leg and get James's attention and uh, come to bring uh, freedom. You know, we search out safe places to weather storms. You know, if the church that we are building is not built with good materials, it will not stand the trials of life. I remember when we lived in Nicaragua, interacting with some of the pastors on some of the more conventional evangelical churches. Um, the, the culture there tend to be fairly body conscious, and uh, especially some of the women would dress in ways that were not not the way godly women here are dressing, and I appreciate that very much. And I don't know how much I interacted with the pastors on this, but it was like, you know what? We face plenty of that kind of stuff out on the street, but the church should be a safe place for our men. You know, it's important that we start out with a good foundation in this church that we're building, that we have it on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But that's not the end of the story. That's not all there is to it. Our text speaks of a time when our building will be tried by fire. Verse 12 speaks of the materials we are using. Are they materials that last? Are they the hay and stubble that disappears with a puff of smoke? Shortcuts in building will result in an inferior structure. Too much sand in the cement mix makes for weak concrete. Skipping on rebar may save money, but allows the house to collapse, even in a minor earthquake. How many of you have been following the, uh, uh, obviously, about the earthquake in Turkey and in Syria? I think some of the latest uh, figures are saying we're getting pretty close to 50,000 deaths and probably quite a few that are still missing. I cannot imagine how that would be. You would have whole families or partial families or them not know who and what. I don't know if you've been following. There's a nuance in this news about that. I just looked some of that up today there at Milo's. And this is an AP, part of an AP article. Turkey has for years tempted fate by not enforcing modern construction codes while allowing and in some cases encouraging a real estate boom in earthquake-prone areas, experts say. The law enforcement that experts in geology and engineering have long warned about is gaining renewed scrutiny in the aftermath of this week's devastating earthquakes, which flattened thousands of buildings. Uh, anyway, this is a disaster caused by shoddy construction, not by an earthquake. I read somewhere that there was, uh, like, building code sabbaticals that were granted to certain builders in the effort to uh, to quickly build, uh, uh, and that they were apparently, uh, and that's news is about always slanted, but I think, I'm assuming that's uh, part of the equation, that a lot of the damage that's happened would not have had to happen if people had been responsible. Well, <clears throat> we talk about wood, hay, and stubble in the construction. Very quickly, what is some of the wood, hay, and stubble in the North American church? Is there wood, hay, and stubble in the churches in Virginia? Out there, the other churches. Popcorn. I won't belabor the point. Cheap grace. Just believe and be saved. Your life doesn't need to change. Remember talking to a pastor. This was in another country. He said, I, I asked him how it was going. He'd come in to start a church in a big city in Latin America. And uh, maybe six months in, well, brother, how's it going? Oh, praise God. I have, I don't remember, did he say 30 or 40 members in his church already? And I said, Ooh, that's pretty remarkable for that amount of time. Anyway, he'd been there for like six months. And I kind of had to wonder, wonder what kind of materials that he's building with, the cynical side of me, the skeptical side of me. And... Maybe I don't need to mention that he belonged to a conference that rewarded pastors or church status based somewhat on, a, on membership levels. Anyway, or there's work salvation kind of on the other side. Just do all the right things and then you will be all right. You can be good enough. 
There's hypocrisy in the churches. There's Phariseeism. I'm better than so-and-so, and because of that, I'm all right. There's the prosperity gospel. That's a very popular thing. The crown without the cross. Maturity without discipline. Power without pain. Wealth without work. It can be church pride. We've got everything down right. I'll tell you what, if you want to know how to do it, you look at my church. we got it put together. But there are building materials that will stand the test of time. First Peter talks of living stones. In First Peter 2, verse 4, To whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. The materials that will stand the test of time. Milo, Ephesians 2.8 For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 9 Repentance unto salvation. It was John the Baptist's message, repent. It was Christ's message. It was Peter's message at Pentecost. Repentance, repentance. People who have experienced repentance. People who live repentance. And it's acceptance of Christ's mercy. It's not by works of righteousness, letter to Titus. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to His mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's those who are united in the goals for Christ's building. You know, the overall building is a sum of its parts. Without a good foundation, we've talked about that, the building doesn't have a chance of being a good building. Our church must be built on the Lord Jesus Christ. In this building here, this gymnasium, We can look up there, and there's the ceiling, and on the outside is the roof, okay? How is the roof supported? By those columns, okay? And uh, it's by the rafters and the walls, and underneath that we have the foundation. And how are the walls held together? I imagine this super frame is bolted together. Is it bolted together or welded, folded probably, and then you have the skin on the outside that is that is fastened together. Each part of the building has its function. We need the floor, we need the walls, we need the columns that hold up that, uh, that uh, roof structure. We can't see the purlins that are running underneath that insulation, but we need all of that to hold up the uh, to hold up the roofing on the outside. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, uh, can one of you uh, tell me what's, what that contains? It contains a list of five. And there's quite a few different lists in the New Testament, Paul's writings especially. This list of five. Merle, do you have it back there? Ephesians 4, verse 11. Okay, apostles 
And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. What do you refer to those as? What do you call them, Leon? You're one of the most senior uh, uh, clergy here tonight, maybe. You call those the ministry gifts? You're fine with that? Okay. These were distributions of responsibility that Paul is enumerating that the church has. And these are kind of well, ministry gifts. I think that really explains it pretty well. The apostles in the New Testament uh, was often used to describe those people that were personally chosen by Jesus or personally uh, accompanied by Jesus. Uh, eyewitnesses in those cases. And God used the apostles in the establishment of the church that he was building. Prophets. What do you think of as prophets in the New Testament context? A prophet like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and some of those guys, it was like they were foretelling events that hadn't happened yet. Or Daniel, maybe events that are still to be happening. But another definition of a prophet is someone who foretells. And I think there's a sense that any one of us who are called to be pastors are prophets as we foretell. Evangelists, those who proclaim the good news, calling people to Christ. Those who spread the glad tidings. Pastors, someone who's been, been given charge of a group of people. I like how, it's, how it uh, uses it in the Spanish. Uh, can you quote Psalm 23, verse 1? Jehová es mi pastor. Nada me faltará. The Lord is my pastor. The Lord is my shepherd. And it's like those that are used interchangeably there. In uh, the Spanish word is the same word as shepherd. Teacher, the fifth one. The function of the teacher is similar to some of the other functions. The job of the teacher is to explain truth, to enable others to understand. Many of us are familiar with Bible truths, but it's an effective teacher that can help us to remember those things and to convey those things in a way that we can, we can uh, learn and, and to be reminded by them. And then what does it say further in that passage, Merle? Read verse 12. Read it loud and clear. Okay, so their function was to equip the saints. So these are the jobs. This is what they're supposed to do. Equip the saints. And I think that's kind of neat. I don't remember, was it officially in my charge when I was ordained, but it was like... Uh, for the equipping of the saints or for the perfecting or the teaching or those kinds of things. I think that's beautiful. And uh, what is the goal of their work? Merle, go with verse 13. Wow. Do we all come in the unity of the faith, perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Verse uh, 14. Mm -hmm. 
that we no longer be children that are just kind of tossed around like a like a piece of driftwood out on the out on a lake. Prophets, evangelists, pastors, teacher, the building is the sum of its many parts. You know, we tend to assign, and we talked about this, I think, last evening a little bit, the visible parts and the, the, the parts that we tend to want and, and seek out, whatever. Uh, and we tend to kind of stratify the different offices in the church. The story is told about the pastor who was trying to address this equality in his church and says, in my church, we're all equal from the pastor all the way down to the janitor. And uh, by his language, kind of betrayed probably while he was really uh, feeling there. You know, the overall building is the sum of its parts, but being united is what gives the building its strength. In that Ephesians 4, verse 3, earlier in that same chapter, Merle, uh, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, verse 4, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through you all. Isn't that interesting? One body, one spirit, one, 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 one. It's talking about a unity, a togetherness here. You know, the church unites on basic doctrine. There's one true creator God. We have a common enemy of our souls, and it's Satan, the deceiver. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, is the only way to God, etc., etc. We unite on basic doctrine as a church. You know, the church needs unity in the goals. A church, a strong church, can be diverse in its giftings, but united in its basic goals. And that can be a powerful church. That can be a strong building. You know, there's a lot of talk about worldview these days. We talk biblical worldview. And it can touch many areas in our life. Our finances, our homes, our missions, our cars, our relation to the world, our relation to government, our relation to politics. In the church, you have a common foundation when you share the same worldview. basically a godly worldview on a pretty basic level boils down to the two-kingdom concept. Have we grasped that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that's radically opposed to the popular view of the day? It was 2,000 years ago. He didn't just come to tweak the system to tweak the common thought of the day. He came to introduce another kingdom altogether. If you don't remember anything else this evening, remember that. Jesus came with a different kingdom. You know, the church needs to stand together. <laughs> this on? Okay. I asked Ben for a little help tonight, and uh, he fetched something from his shop or somewhere. 
Can someone tell me what this is? Four by four? Ten feet? I would go with that. That's what it looks like to me. A four by four about ten feet long. Uh, do you do pole buildings here in Virginia? Some people do. Is the nice guys, smart guys, or the cheapskates, or rednecks, or what is it? Okay. The, the smart people have them. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, for a time in my life when I was younger, and I don't know, maybe more foolish, I was on a crew, and we put up pole buildings. We traveled around the state of Kansas a bunch, and we put up pole buildings. Back then, we were using... Uh, Six-by-six six posts quite a bit. We use solid posts. By now, they've gone a lot to laminated posts, I guess. And I did that for maybe five years. I don't know, something like that. And a six-by-six six post that was 26 feet long, like in the middle of an end wall, how would you describe that post? Wobbly, okay. What else? Was it pretty heavy? Was it going to be kind of hard to set in the in the hole if you did it by hand? Yeah. Okay. That's all pretty accurate. How deep are you going to bury these posts here in Virginia? Four feet. Okay. Are you going to put a concrete cookie or something in the bottom of it? Okay. I think it's a good idea. Something to keep it from settling on down. Okay. We got a 26-foot post. And we're going to dig a four-foot hole. We're going to put a four-foot cookie in the bottom of it, okay? And now we're going to tamp that post in. We got our string line run. And we got the foreman who's holding the four-foot lever level. And it's windy, and he's trying to make sure that thing is straight back and forth. It's even with the line, and it's, it's in place, okay? And then he hollers out, Dirt! And so they start bringing in dirt, and they're tamping, and maybe if you're lucky, you have a hydraulic tamper, you're going like that. After a while, you got that post in, and it's tamped all the way to the top. And that post is a strong post. It's a straight post. It doesn't have a lot of knots in it. It wasn't one that you had to kind of try to figure out now which side are you going to put in the wall and which side are you going to do another way. But even after that post was set, was standing alone, it wasn't all that stable, even if it might have been a very strong post. You know, if I'd have leaned a ladder up against that post and I would have climbed all the way to the top, which I theoretically could have, Tell me what my sensations would have been. And unless you're more of a monkey than I am, there would be things significantly unsettling about that experience. Can you identify with what I'm saying? Okay. Anyway, let's say that's a corner post now. So what if that post was standing there in the corner? going to be there, but it's there by itself. If I would 
climb up on top of that funny juicy. And I would try to, I mean, theoretically, I could balance. Last night, it was either balancing on one leg or whatever. I could theoretically have balanced on top of that post. But in reality, probably not. What would you do when you're building a pole barn to make that post stable? We would have put up maybe a 14, a 16 foot or whatever, a pretty high 2 by 4 up there. Maybe put it in with a duplex now. And we'd be there. Maybe by then we'd have the next post over set. We could take that thing down, and when the former foreman says it's perfect, and that guy down on the bottom be nailing that nail in, and you'd be putting one on the other side. And then you'd go through and you put in the the girts, the nailers on the side. You start out with that first treated plank, and then about two feet up, thirty inches up, or whatever. Come with another two by six or whatever. And by the time you got that thing tied together, and you put in a permanent brace and a permanent brace. And you put in that rafter system over the top of that thing. And you tied those rafters together with purlin sign. And you maybe put some braces diagonally across that roof. You set that ladder back up against that post. Now what do you have? That post is almost as solid as the top as it is on the ground. We have transferred stability of that next post over, the base of that next post over. We have tied the strength of that building in with the strength of the rest of that building. That end wall on this side, the side wall there, the rafters on the top, and all of that down on that concrete turkey has been tied together. That's a tremendous example, I think, of how our churches can be. We can have a person with superior giftings, superior talents. They can be the smartest, the most informed guy in the whole church. But if he can't integrate with the rest of the building, he's not really of too much use to that building. church that's filled with lone rangers is a church at risk. Being united is what gives a building its strength. Uh, moving on. We are getting close to the end here. The church leadership team sets the tone for church unity. This unity, and if I would be teaching this in a pastor's conference, I would be stressing this especially much. They set the tone for the rest of the church. You know, I came to, on the scene too late to work with horses, and I looked out across this crowd. I don't think any of you plowed ground with horses either, unless it was for a demonstration or whatever. I found it fascinating, though. There's a town kind of an Amish community, Yoder, Kansas, not too far from us. And they have a celebration in the summer. They call it Yoder Days. And one year they had a demonstration with draft horses. 
these draft horses were set up kind of like a tractor pull, and they would pull this weighted sled. I can just about see, I don't have a real clear memory of all of the events and all of the teams that were there. There weren't a ton of them. People aren't typically using horses actually in the field that much anymore. I think there was a pair of black percherons, maybe two or three pairs of Belgians. I don't know what all they had there. But it was interesting to watch. Not necessarily the most beautiful teams were the ones that won that pulling contest. The guy on the reins, or in one case it was a woman, I think, they'd be trying to get the horses to go. You know, now it's time to go. Well, maybe old Lefty would kind of lunge in and he thinks they're telling us to go. And about the time Lefty was getting tired of trying, Righty catches on with, ah, I think they want us to pull. Lefty's given up and Righty's going after it. And back and forth. Sled doesn't move too much in that kind of a situation. As I recall, the team that won that wasn't an unusually good-looking team. A little bit of a raw-boned, rough team, maybe a little young, I don't know. And their manager was an Amish guy who looked kind of similar, sort of rough and raw-boned. But there was something about the chemistry between that man on the reins and those two horses. When he wanted them to go, those horses went. And those horses pulled that sled and just took it right on out of there. Leaders, you set the team. You set the tone for your churches. Some of you, you've had an ordination here recently. God bless you. Uh, you have an opportunity to demonstrate how you've learned to work under the impulse of the reins, the man holding the reins. Well, I think we should be wrapping up. Runway is coming up, and the plane isn't leveled out too well yet. Uh, I think I'll just kind of head to the conclusion here. You know, as individuals, we are part of churches. And the churches are basically made up of individuals. Made up of individuals who have chosen to allow the Spirit of God to dwell in those individuals. Am I speaking quiet? <laughs> okay. Uh, what are some of the things that we should be holding forth as a church? What are things that Bethel Fellowship should be holding forth? What are the uniting forces, the things that should grip our hearts to be a consistent witness to our communities? I think we might get into that a bit 
I'm not sure, but how important that is. If people know when they're dealing with Lowell, Lowell will treat them right. Or Delvin, or Sunny, or wherever you are, Ben, if you're doing construction. To have an evangelistic zeal for the nations. To be a welcoming church that draws people in. To be a safe place where people can be honest about their struggles. I'm not doing too well. Could you pray for me? A place that's safe to be vulnerable. Church maintenance, I could have talked about that. It's not something that happens automatically. Church maintenance is very important. In our buildings, if we neglect them, shingles start blowing off, tar paper blows off, nobody does anything. That old dairy barn might have a hole in the roof before too long. It was a building that wouldn't have had to go that way. As people, I want you to capture the vision that Bethel Church can be a viable, a living building, standing strong from the foundation to Jesus Christ when he returns to receive his bride. The final point this evening, the triumphant church will weather the storms of life and will stand victorious, triumphant, and beautiful on that final day. We have Christ's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church he is building. Matthew 7, verse 21, basically at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Then it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Christ is building his church. His church will triumph. We are invited to be a part of that triumphant church tonight. This evening, I want us to capture the vision in a new way to be living stones in that building.
building up. I wanted to talk a whole section about how we can be part of the construction process. Uh, time kind of got away for us tonight. Uh, but there's ways that each of us can be involved in that process of helping lay that next block, of helping mortar that next joint of that church that Christ is building, is being built. Can we be plugged in, committed to the rest of the building, tied into the building, founded on the solid foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, not afraid of the gates and the fires of hell. God is building his church today. God is building his church in Campbell County, Virginia. Praise his name. Let's stand for prayer. Dear God, we thank you for your presence here with us this evening. We thank you for these challenges that we can receive as we look into your word regarding the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear God, I just pray that as we reviewed this thing, that all of us, all these things, that all of us could, in new ways, make sure that we are building with precious stones, with building materials that will stand the fires of judgment. Dear God, and just help us to be actively involved in constructing this building for your glory. Help us, dear God, that the building that we're building in that final day will be a building that will stay standing while the foolish buildings are washed away by the sands, by the winds, by the floods of time beating on it. Go with us this evening. We thank you for your presence with us, your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name.